one of the pastors here at New Life Prez, and I have the joy and privilege of preaching God's Word today. And we're continuing on in our series in the book of Philippians. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, where you can follow along on the screen. And as you're turning there, if you can, as an act of worship and reverence before our Lord, I would like to ask us to please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from verses 1 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2. This is God's holy, perfect, and inerrant word for us today. It says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significantly than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word for you and me today. Please take your seats. Well, in case you missed it last week, Pastor Will took us through the end of chapter 1 of the book of Philippians. And one of the points that he drew out for us from that text was that a life that is worthy of the gospel, that is a life where there is true joy, true contentment, is actually a life where we are living as soldiers for Jesus. In other words, we're living in community, standing side by side, united together in the gospel. Or... In other words, if you're looking for gospel joy in this journey that we call life, then dear friends, you need community where you are with your brothers and sisters standing side by side. Now, I bring that particular point up because our passage today is essentially a part two of Paul's point regarding unity in the church. You see, in our passage, he cogently builds his case that because of the gospel, you and I ought to be united together. There needs to be unity in the church. Now, I think we'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in this room who would disagree with the Apostle Paul and say, no, look, we need greater disunity. We need more cliques. We need more isolation. You see, it's not a matter of should we be more united. The real question is, well, how do we get there? What is it going to take for this church, for us, the body of Jesus Christ, to be greater united together? Take New Life, for instance. I think if we were to pool and honest answers from everyone here regarding the question, well, what do you think we need to build greater unity here? I think the answers would actually vary because for some of us, we would consider it as a size issue. You know, I've heard from various New Life members, both at first and second service, uh, they would always say, you know, New Life Prez is not how it used to be because when it was smaller, people were more intentional. They knew each other. It was easier to feel more at home. There were no awkward moments where at the Easter picnic, first service people and second service people came together and being like, oh, you go to this church? Even though they've been going forever. So for some of us, we think maybe a smaller church will lead to greater unity. Maybe it's a size issue. 
or for others of us, you know, especially as a confessionally reformed church, it's an intellectual issue. If only we had more theological education, less book studies, more Bible studies. If we can only increase our theological acumen, maybe then there would be greater unity. Or lastly, maybe for those of us who are newer to New Life Prez, it's a fellowship issue. It's hard to intentionally meet and build relationships. And so if only we had more fellowship events, more opportunities to get to know each other, then and only then maybe would there be greater unity. You know, we can go on and on, but the point I'm trying to make is this, is we all have different legitimate solutions and ways to foster greater unity in this church. Church size certainly matters. Theology certainly matters. Fellowship certainly matters. But while all of those possible solutions are really worth discussing and are very important, in our passage today, we're going to find that for Paul, there's actually an all-encompassing solution. It's not the most strategic-sounding. It's not the most appealing to all of us here, but it is the one solution that will cover every unity-harming problem that we face here in this church. For you see, friends, Paul's solution for us to foster gospel unity is this. You and I, we need humility. His solution is you and I, we need humility. Or if I could put it a bit more dramatically, the greatest threat to gospel unity in this church is a lack of of humility. We need it. Without it, our church will always feel disjointed, distant, cold. Without it, we risk losing out on the joy that comes from standing side by side together in the gospel of Jesus Christ as citizens of his kingdom, soldiers for him. You see, church, humility is indispensable for gospel unity. Paul wants us to see that. He wants us to believe that. And ultimately, he wants us to live that out. And so for today, we'll be unpacking Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, to see how does Paul build his case for the need for humility. We'll take a look at his logic there. So three guiding points for us today as we move through our passage. First, we're going to look at the need for gospel humility. We'll look at why you and I, we can't settle for humility as a good Christian value. It's something that we need to actually have and actually live out. We'll look at the need. Secondly, we'll look at the example that shows us how otherworldly gospel humility actually is. We're going to see that the type of humility we need, it actually doesn't come from within us. It's otherworldly. And lastly, we'll look at despite how otherworldly this humility might be, all of us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have hope to actually get there. So we'll look at the hope. Or more simply put, we'll break it down like this. We'll first look at the need. Second, we'll look at the example. And thirdly, we'll look at the hope. And so starting with the need, if you have your Bibles open, Paul spends the first four verses building his case and showing us why you and I, we need gospel humility to foster gospel unity. And you see, friends, the way that he gets there is he first shows us the goal of gospel unity. He's first going to show us where do we need to be, what's the goal. He's going to show us why you and I aren't there, and then he's going to show us how humility is the key to take us from here and meet the goal. So look with me again at our text, starting in verse 1. We're going to unpack Paul's logic. In verse 1, the Apostle Paul, he begins by appealing to how there are blessed gospel realities that Philippians, as well as every other Christian like you and me, all experience and share in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, he's not appealing to general, idealistic Christian realities that are somehow far off in the distance. Paul's appeal is narrow. 
It's specific. It's close to you. It's personal. It's as if Paul is trying to say, you Philippians, you New Life Press, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have experienced, you are experiencing, and you will continue to experience encouragement, comfort, fellowship with the Holy Spirit, affection and love and sympathy. No matter who we are or what we have done, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are richly blessed. That's Paul's point in verse 1. Now, admittedly, the sense is lost in the English translations that supply that phrase, there is, in verse 1. It makes it sound like Paul is uncertain, as if he's trying to say, you know, if you happen to be encouraged, if you happen to find comfort, and so on and so forth. But you see, friends, a little translation of the Greek here would go something along the lines of this. If any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Holy Spirit, if any affection and sympathy. And so perhaps what best captures what Paul is trying to do in the Greek is to take each of those clauses and transform them into leading questions. So imagine the Apostle Paul is standing here and he's asking you, New Life Press, you have encouragement in Christ, right? You have comfort in Christ, right? You have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, right? Now, a running joke amongst our staff is how sometimes, and I won't say who it is, but sometimes we have a staff member who asks a lot of leading questions. She, uh, not she, well, <laughs> he or she asks these leading questions to draw out one answer and one answer only. You see, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's doing the same exact thing. He's asking leading questions to draw out one answer and one answer only. Paul wants the Philippians and you and me to realize and see that if you trust in Jesus Christ today, then your answer to everything in verse 1, all the guiding questions about the blessed gospel realities in Jesus Christ, all of your answers is a resounding yes. You see, friends, what Paul is doing here in verse 1 is he's establishing what we call the indicatives of the Christian life. He's letting you and me know that in Jesus Christ, this is the objective reality. We are blessed in him. And it's only after that, after establishing the indicatives, that Paul moves on then to the imperatives. Well, what should we do in light of these objective realities? He moves on in verse 2. Look with me again there where the Apostle Paul, he writes this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is trying to say is he's saying, since all of verse one is true for you in Christ, now complete my joy by being united together as one community. You see, the indicative realities of Christ ought to overflow into the imperatives of the Christian life, how we should live, namely, in unity, in gospel unity. Now, Paul doesn't leave it up to our imagination to determine what does Christian unity actually look like. You see, in, Paul mind, in Paul's mind, in order for there to be true Christian gospel unity, there needs to be two things, unity in conviction and unity in love. There needs to be unity in conviction and unity in love. Let's unpack that just for a little bit. Starting with unity in conviction, the phrase is in, in verse 2, being of the same mind and of one mind is actually translated from the Greek word literally to think 
And so what Paul is literally saying, he's saying, church, think the same thing. Think the one thing. You see, what Paul is getting at is there's an intellectual component to our unity. We are to be of the same mind, thinking the same things. Or as one commentator so helpfully put it, we are to be in agreement in the truth. We are to agree together, united in our convictions. Now, I think it's worth noting at this point that unity in conviction, agreement in truth, that doesn't mean that we will see eye to eye on everything. You see, friends, we might differ on our view on parenting, how we steward our finances, what our political leanings are, our view on culture, and we might even differ in parts of our doctrine, theology, and praxis. We may differ in a lot of things, but what Paul is trying to say is that at the end of the day, the gospel realities of being in Jesus Christ for you and for me, it inextricably binds us together to the point that we are so united on the essentials of the faith that we stand side by side together, united, agreeing in truth. But lest we think that Paul is advocating that unity is merely just intellectual agreement, agreeing together on the essentials, agreeing in theology and doctrine, just as important for Paul is also unity in love. If you look again with me at verse 2, sandwiched in the middle, Paul writes this, having the same love, being in full accord. Now, having the same love is fairly straightforward, but that latter part, being in full accord, is actually a little peculiar in the Greek. It's, it comes from one singular word that carries the force of something along the lines of united in spirit. I think the closest English equivalent to that would be something along the lines of soulmates. You know, we know what soulmates are. We have ideas of what soulmates are. Hopefully our spouses, we treat them like they're our soulmates. But whether you think the concept of soulmates is silly or not, the point is that in the same way that soulmates are so inextricably connected together in love that nothing in this world can separate them, Paul is trying to say in that same way, Christians are united together in spirit, like soulmates, so connected in love together that nothing, nothing can separate them and pull them apart. You know, to put it another way, one scholar by the name of Dennis Johnson, he's a retired professor from Westminster Seminary, California, he said this, it's as if Paul is saying, it is not enough to agree with each other theologically. God actually calls you to care for each other deeply in a love that binds your soul together so strongly that differences of perspectives cannot pull you apart. Friends, in other words, do you want to know if there's true gospel unity here in this room? Look to the differences in perspectives that permeates all throughout the room, whether it's different lifestyles, different family dynamic, different political views, different culture, and more do you find that those differences tend to pull you apart from your fellow brothers and sisters? Do they create what feels like irreconcilable differences that actually dampen your relationship and friendships until it eventually just fizzles out and you're just isolated by yourself? Or, in light of those, despite those differences, are you able to navigate through them with patience, kindness, love, and grace? Church, if there is unity in love, we will be able to do the latter. If there is unity in love, then we will be able to work through differences, even with the most difficult people, without being pulled apart, straining our relationships. 
And so that's the case. Well, what's stopping us? Well, Paul gives us the diagnosis in verses 3 to 4. Being the wonderful counselor that he is, he gets to the root of the issue in our hearts. Paul says, an overly dogmatic attitude that kills unity and conviction, a lack of love and care for one another that kills unity in love, those are all symptoms of a self-centered heart that says, me first, then you. Me first, then you. Those are symptoms, friends, of a lack of humility. And so what is the remedy according to Paul? Gospel humility. Look with me again at verses 3 to 4. Paul writes this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. You see, in this passage, self-ambition, conceit, looking only to your own interests, those are all descriptors of a heart that is turned inwardly on itself. They are descriptors of self-centeredness, descriptors of a lack of humility that says, me first at the expense of you. But on the flip side, counting others more significant than ourselves, looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, those, according to Paul, are descriptors of a heart that is turned outwards. Those are descriptors of other-centeredness. They are descriptors of gospel humility that says, you first, even at the expense of me. Do you see the difference there? One attitude is self-serving. The other is self-giving. One attitude is inward-facing. The other attitude is outward-facing. One attitude destroys unity. The other builds and maintains it. And friends, this is where the penny drops. The real honest reason that there is disunity is because in one way or another, your heart and mine, it's naturally bent to look inwardly to itself. You see, our natural inclination of the heart is to be self-centered. Now, of course, it's true that there are some of us in this room who just seem to be naturally more self-giving, more focused on helping others and meeting the needs of others. But, what if, what if, but if what Paul is saying is true, then even for those types of people, there inevitably will come a time where they will wonder, what about me? Who is going to help me? Who is going to serve me? Now, in all honesty, maybe some of us are sitting in there thinking that today. Who is going to serve me? Because it's no secret that we see the same people serving, often in multiple roles, week in and week out. And so maybe if that's you, you're one of those people who joyfully serve because your natural temperament is drawn to serving others. But maybe, just maybe, after years and years of serving in the same position week in and week out, you've actually come to a place where you're growing a little frustrated. And you're thinking to yourself, why won't someone else come? Why won't someone else do it? And maybe, just maybe, You've even detached yourself from serving others as a result of that. Well, dear brothers and sisters, the answer to why, someone, why won't someone else come, why won't someone else do it, the answer is because our hearts are naturally turned inwardly on itself. We are naturally self-centered. And according to Paul, your frustrations, however true it may be, your frustrations actually also stem from a heart that naturally wants to look inwardly to itself and not to the interests 
of others. And so whether you've been serving or not, you see all of us, we need gospel humility to sustain us, to give us lasting joy and contentment, to build and maintain gospel unity. But you see, that type of humility, it's not natural to us. It's not because of one's temperament. In fact, it's not within us. It can't be within us. It's totally otherworldly. And this leads us then to our second point, the example that shows us just how otherworldly this type of humility is. Now, in verses 6 to 11, we find the greatest example of gospel humility ever demonstrated in, in all of time in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we could spend hours and hours mining the treasures of who Christ is in these short verses. But for the purpose of today, I want to focus on how did Jesus exemplify true humility in its purest form? Because, you see, the way Paul captures the magnitude of Jesus' humility is by juxtaposing for us who is Jesus and what did Jesus do. Now, in verse 6, Paul is clear. Jesus, he's truly God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the most powerful, most deserving of praise and honor, the most important person ever. Jesus, he is here. He's at the top. If I was taller, it would be much higher, but he's up here. Jesus is at the top. Yet, we're told in verse 6 that Jesus, he did not count equality with, a God, with God a thing to be grasped, which is to say, that Jesus, even though his status was here, even though he was the most important person, most, most powerful, most authoritative person, he didn't take his status as something to be taken advantage of. He didn't view his status as a platform to demand service to him, even though he was worthy of it. Instead, Jesus, he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant as a lowly man. Now, it's worth noting that when it says that Jesus emptied himself, he didn't empty himself of his divinity. He didn't become less God. Rather, what it means when it says that Jesus emptied himself is Scripture is referring to how Jesus both willingly chose not to use his divinity to his advantage, and he added on a complete, lowly, servant-like human nature as a man. You know, let me put it to you this way. Now, I'll admit, no illustration of the mystery of Jesus' two natures as both truly God and truly man, there's no real illustration that can capture that perfectly. But imagine that there was a CEO, someone who has the highest power and authority over a company. Imagine that there was a CEO who was willing to, who was willing to both add on the role, of an, and role and status of an intern while also foregoing the power and authority he has as a CEO. He's at the top, but he has willingly decided to take on the status and role of an intern. Now, for the sake of this illustration, he didn't give up his status as a CEO. He's still there, but he emptied himself by taking on the role of a lowly servant, of an intern, choosing to serve others in a way that we can't fathom a CEO would. So you have to ask yourself, what would drive someone to do something as foolish as that? Yet in a similar but better and truer way, Jesus, friends, who is truly God and truly man, he did just that. Jesus, the one who should have been served by us, he came to serve you and me in humility. Jesus came to meet our greatest need to redeem us from our sins, even at the cost of his dignity and life. 
the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, he was ridiculed. He was mocked by the very people he came to serve. He was given a dishonorable criminal's death on the cross in our, pay, in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. Yet strikingly, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that for the joy, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. And so in the purest way, Jesus' entire redemptive work exemplified for us gospel humility that says, my people first, even at the expense of me. That's the type of humility that we see in Jesus. Or to put it another way, if I could put just a different spin on an illustration that Pastor Will gave earlier on in this series. You know, friends, for a church like us, when we look to our achievements and our resume, we might think that we're somebody. We have status. We're people to be respected and people to be known. And that might be true. I'm not certainly downplaying all that everyone has accomplished here and has done. But friends, I need to remind us, in comparison to Christ, all of that means nothing. In comparison to Christ, you and I, we are all nobodies. Christ is the only real somebody, yet in humility, he became a nobody to make nobodies like you and me somebodies in his kingdom. That's the level of humility that Christ had for you and for me. Now, what kind of person would give up the level of authority and power that Jesus had to serve others? No one but him. How could someone of Jesus' status find joy in suffering for the sake of others, never entertaining the thought of, well, what about me? Who will serve me? We can't fathom that kind of humility in any other because it's not natural to us. It's only in Jesus. Jesus' humility is otherworldly. Yet, friends, that is precisely the type of humility that the Apostle Paul is saying that you and I need to have for the unity of the church. So what hope do we have? If it's so otherworldly, if none of us have it in us, what hope do we have to actually have gospel humility? That leads us to our last point. Now, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to read verses 6 to 11 and draw out the application as something along the lines of, live like Jesus, imitate him, be humble like Jesus. Because Jesus' way of living is surely the pattern and standard for our ways of living. It has to be. We're followers of Jesus. But herein lies the problem. Jesus' humility is otherworldly. It's not natural to us. It's not in us. So how are we supposed to imitate him? Well, Paul gives us an otherworldly answer to an otherworldly problem. The hope that we have that although the gospel of humility is oh so out there, you and I, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have access to it by virtue of our union with Christ. We have access to Christ's humility by virtue of our union with Christ. We are united to him. Look with me again at verse 5 where it says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, Paul is trying to show us that the chief way that you and I can have the same otherworldly gospel humility as Jesus is not by trying harder to imitate Jesus, but it's through our union with Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong or bad to want to live like Jesus. He is the pattern that we follow. We should live and try to be like him, but we need to keep first things first. 
Union with Jesus, union with Christ, is what leads to living like Jesus. Now, we can think about it like this. You know, in the early 2000s, I remember receiving a bracelet. I don't remember from who, but it had the letters WWJD. Now, for those of us who don't remember or don't know what that means, WWJD stood for, what would Jesus do? And the idea was to ask that question, what would Jesus do in every situation? Because it was an attempt to live like Jesus, to follow his example. But as good-hearted as that WWJD marketing thing might have been, I don't think Paul would have agreed. Based on verse 5, had Paul been the one to market those bracelets, I think he would have changed WWJD to WHJD. Not, what, what, not what, did Jesus, what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus done? It's not what would Jesus do, but it's first things first. What has Jesus done? And Jesus, he lived the perfect life. He died the sinner's death and resurrected, and he did that all in our place so that all who believes in him would be so united to him that his mind, Jesus' mind, now becomes our mind. Christ's humility becomes our, our humility. One commentator captured the importance of understanding what does it really mean that we are united to Christ. Now, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something along the lines of this. Christ didn't only set us an example of humility. Through his redemptive work, Christ has united us to him to reconfigure and transform the inclinations of our hearts so that his mindset, that is, his joy in selflessly serving others, is now becoming our mindset. You see, union with Christ means that an inwardly collapsed heart is now being reshaped and reconfigured to now open wide. It might be slow, but slowly but surely, it's an inward heart that is slowly opening out towards others. Because you see, heart change, friends, it never happens from the inside out in terms of our own power, our own strength. It happens from outside where by Christ, by our union with him, he is working in us to transform us. And so what that means is, yes, most certainly, we should read Christ's example in verses 6 to 11 as the example par excellence of humility that you and I need to follow. But more importantly than that, more important than just the good example, we need to know and we need to read it as by virtue of our union with Christ, because our Savior humbled himself to meet our greatest need, we have been redeemed. And as the redeemed in Christ, you and I can now surely be confident that he himself, by his Spirit, is also renewing us now, forming our minds, reshaping our hearts. Now, one of the greatest preachers of all time by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was once asked by a friend, Martin, it feels weird to call him Martin, but I'll say, Mr. Lloyd-Jones, how can I be humble? That friend, you know, fully expecting the great preacher of all time to give him a set of steps to go from self-centered pride to other-centered humility. This friend was caught off guard when Martin Lloyd-Jones said something like this, I have no method or technique I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. Dear brothers and sisters, do you find that you lack gospel humility? 
do you find that you are more self-centered than other-centered? If that's you, then God's grace to you today and every day until our Lord returns is, if you trust in Christ, then you have been united to him. And because you have been united to him, slowly but surely, Christ by his spirit is reshaping your life to be more outward-facing, with self-giving, other-centered, Christ-like humility. You and I can be confident of that today. And so given all that, now what about now? Just two points of application before we close. The first one is this. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. How can we respond today? Look to Jesus. Fill your forgetful minds with who Jesus is and what he has done for the only remedy for a prideful, inwardly turned heart is to gaze upon Christ and, and to soak and think in light of what, who he is and what he has done. Now, in the most recent New Life Counseling newsletter, which, by the way, I, I highly recommend that we all read it, one of our members wrote that while they are trying to show their kids love through serving them joyfully, they themselves often find that they default into a transactional accounting of love and service. And so that particular uh, testimony or whatever you want to call it, it ended with the, I'm not try- so I'm trying not to do that anymore. I'm trying not to treat my service to others, especially with my kids, as transactional. Whoever shared that, if you're in this room, I want to let you know I agree. Me too. I feel the same exact way. I too want to stop treating my service unto others in a transactional way. And if anyone else relates to that in this room, dear friends, the remedy to that is to look to our Savior, to look and see that we have been united with him, and he's working in us, transforming us. The second point of application is this, look to the needs of others. For some of us here, we already know what the needs of the people around us are. are. If that's you, have you ever considered maybe God is calling you to be the one to meet that person's need. Now, in a sinful world that's broken and fallen, there, there might feel like there's too many needs to go around. I'm just one person, and you're exactly right. But perhaps in God's sovereignty, he has placed them in your life particularly so that you would be the one to exercise Christ-like humility to them. But for the rest of us, if we don't know what the needs of the people are, maybe it's because we don't know one another. Maybe our most pressing need in this church right now is gospel friendship. And so perhaps one way that we can exercise gospel humility is to leave this sanctuary, go into the fellowship hall, meet with a stranger, someone you've never spoken with, and get to know them. It'll be uncomfortable. It'll cost you something. But remember, Jesus, it's you even at the expense of me. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. And so our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you challenge us in your word to live lives worthy of the gospel of your Son. Yet, Lord, we confess that on our own, we don't have what it takes to do what you require us to do. Gospel unity and humility, it cannot be forged by our own efforts. We need you. So help us in our weakness to look to Christ, Christ who has united us to him and is now transforming us. Help us to exercise gospel humility for the glory of your name, We pray in Jesus Christ. Amen.